0: Welcome to the Wildscast. Michael Eisenberg is co founder and general partner at Aleph, an early stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. Michael has been a venture capitalist for 25 years. Aleph focuses on partnering with great Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and impactful global brands. Since its founding in 2013, Aleph has invested in more than 40 companies. Including Melio, Lemonade, Bring Joy Tunes, Healthy.io, and Nexar.
1: Okay, we are live. Welcome to the Wilds Cast, MGE's podcast. I am so excited about our guest uh, this afternoon. Whenever you're listening to this, uh, Michael Eisenberg. Thank you so much for coming on. Michael is uh, co-founder and partner at Olive. Olive is a very successful venture capital fund which focuses on partnering with Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and impactful global brands. They've invested in over 25 companies, including Milio, Lemonade, WeWork, Healthy.io, Spark Beyond, JoyTunes, and Bring. I hope I pronounced those companies correctly, Michael.
2: It was good. Um, thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: Oh, it is such a pleasure and honor. Thank you for joining. Let me just give you a little more background before we get into a conversation. Uh, Michael has been writing a blog since 2006 called six kids and a full-time job i assume that um cuz i know at the end of your bio it says you have eight children believe I so i guess you you only had six at the time when you started that blog
2: that's true and it was terrible branding cuz it wasn't scalable
1: <laughs> that's great well i guess it depends what community you're you're talking to so um in in that blog michael writes on topics ranging from technology, Judaism, macroeconomics. He is a frequent contributor to the Marker and to calculist, which is Israel's Hebrew language daily business newspapers. And he's author also of the Chumas Manifesto. I love that name, which is the seminal piece on Israel's innovation scene. He has published five books, uh, all in Hebrew. The last two are translated into English. The books he wrote are called The Vanishing Jew, ben baruch the tree of life and prosperity we're going to be talking about that one that's his most recent book everyone can be moses and roaring tribe i mentioned that two of the books vanishing jew and the tree of life and prosperity have been adapted and translated into english uh, michael lectures frequently on venture capital and entrepreneurship he lives in yerushalayim uh, with his wife Yaffa, and as you just heard his Ah, uh, Bli eight children and two granddaughters. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Don't leave. I, I have a grandson as of the last three months. So I guess that didn't make the bio. So uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, we shouldn't leave him out. Two granddaughters. <laughs> That's it. Are you? Um. What do you go by? Are you a grandpa? You're a safta. You're. A... I go by Papa.
1: Papa, I love
2: it. Yeah, I love my, it. My great grandfather, for whom I'm named, was uh, was Papa. So
1: that's beautiful. You should have continued nachas and just good things to come. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, one of the things I try to demonstrate through my classes and my talks over the last 20 something years uh, at MGE, which, as you know, is geared for, for our, our Jewish brothers and sisters that might be a little less knowledgeable or connected. And one of the things I, I demonstrate, I try, is that Torah and mitzvah are not outdated and that they are a relevant spiritual path for all of us to continue to take into the 21st century. Now, your most recent book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, brings these values, these Torah values, within the context of business and venture. Can you elaborate a little and tell us how you see Torah as something truly relevant and helpful in the 21st century, particularly when it comes to the business model?
2: Well, let's start with the kind of uh, a little appreciated fact, and that is that uh, Torah, uh, particularly the five books of Moses, uh, has more unique users in history than Google and Facebook combined. And we have this kind of notion that all these modern behemoths are the biggest things ever. Well, no, there have been many, many, many billions and billions and billions of people throughout history and even currently who who study the Bible and study Torah. And so uh, one should assume, I think correctly, that uh, a a body of work, a text, a canonical text that has lasted for thousands of years um, and is read by billions and billions of people probably has something to say across the generations and has stood the test of time far more so than let's call it the newbie digital uh, behemoths. And so that's kind of starting point one. Starting point two is uh, the Torah very clearly speaks about a time in history but the lessons in parts are translatable and transferable to any point in history, which is why there's been so much exegesis and commentary on the Torah and each person through his or her lens and they found relevance uh, to it. And I'm certain somebody lived through the industrial revolution or the Renaissance or the reformation or whatever it was said, maybe it's not relevant. Oh yes, it is relevant. And hmm. so uh, I think the same thing is, is, is true. Very true. Now my own lens is economic and technology. Cause what I do all day is invest in, and live in the economy. And if you read through the Torah carefully, and you actually don't have to be that careful, you'll realize that it's about our daily problems. When I launched the first book in Hebrew, uh, The Tree of Life and Prosperity in Hebrew, Rabbi Benny Lau, someone asked him, what did you learn from his book? He said, I learned that things haven't changed in 3,000 years. People <laughs> work most of the day. They trade in commerce. They have to struggle with families and family business issues. They... Have a you know an issue? How do you deal with wealth in the same way that Andrew Carnegie, and Warren Buffett had to do? with it Avram Avinu Abraham needed to deal with it too? They run into financial and economic challenges, like in the famine in the time of Abraham, and the famine in the time of of Isaac, and uh, and in the ups and downs that Jacob had in his business and his business dealings. They deal with cheats, you know, like uh, Yaakov and Lavan, and they have macroeconomic problems like Joseph dealt with, and so. These are all relevant to today. And as I show throughout the book, innovation also plays a big role in the book of Breshit and the book of Genesis. And those are relevant to today as well. We just need to read the stories properly and we need to uh, not assume that that was then. And this is now, but rather that was, then. it's the same now, or it rhymes, or we can apply these lessons. And I think I gave a class earlier today in a, in a college here. Um, and uh, one of the pieces of feedback I got uh, from these 120 very smart uh, young people was they never thought of Tanakh or Torah in the context of modern economic problems and the wisdom we can take to solve real-time economic issues today. And that, um, I think, is part of what I'm trying to get across. it's super relevant. And mitzvahs, by the way, for what it's worth, create the framework on our life. Is How does, how does life not run amuck? How does nature not run amok? How do people not run amok with their natural instincts? And I think that's super important.
1: Thank you so much. Can you give us an example? Because in the book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, you make the case of how uh, Safer Brayshid, the book of Genesis you just referred to, has these eternal principles for successful businesses, for negotiation, for economics. Share one or two such principles.
2: Let's talk about Noah for a second, because I think most of your uh, viewers or listeners, you say, "Okay, who was Noah? Oh, I know Noah. He built an ark. He saved the world from the flood. That's a small part of the story of Noah. Noah's, uh, Noah builds the ark, but his first invention is actually the plow. And the sages say he invented the plow, but we can actually see this in the text, something very simple, which is the age at which people had children descends from Adam and then meets a guy named Jared or Jared in English, and starts going back up with, with one exception. And Yared, Jared, is the Thomas Malthus of, of that time. And Thomas Malthus famously said that there wouldn't be enough food to feed the world. This is a couple hundred years ago. And here we are 200 years later with a lot more people and a lot more food. So, um, but Malthus exists in every generation and Jared was there. He comes along Noah and Noah uncorks human prosperity. There was a limit to the amount of food that humanity could produce and Noah invents the plow. And he's the first person mentioned with three children by name. And it then says in the Torah, That uh, uh, the number of people on earth began to multiply significantly. And then, as often happens, prosperity brings around decadence. And we have a loss of trust in society. First, you know, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, start hitting on the women. Um, They start taking advantage, sexually harassing the women. And you also have a loss of of trust inside with the the Torah calls Hamas. People start stealing a little bit, eroding the trust. And it comes from prosperity not from, uh, not from uh, you know, missing anything. Right.
1: Comes- in, in, what's interesting also, Michael, is that um, on one hand, you know, it, this prosperity always leads to some sort of corruption, as you're alluding to. But uh, the Torah actually says at the tail end of Parshat Breshit, when it introduces us to the birth of Noah, it says that he got his name, Ki Yenachamecha, because God is going to, uh, bring comfort, or,
2: or really Noah brought bring comfort, and, the, and that's what you're saying, he built the plow, so that invention, <laughs> this thing or this person, meaning the plow and its inventor Noah will bring uh, <laughs> because of the cursed land what did he do? He built the plow and uncursed the land, We could start to produce more food, and that's Noah the great innovator, and then kind of after the ark story, Noah comes out of the ark and after bringing sacrifices, he, he, he plants a vineyard. And vineyard is, is for wine and fermentation. After every flood, we have a problem with clean water. That's true in modern society as well. But wine is the water of the ancients because it was alcoholic and always clean. And so Noah, having invented the mechanical plow, now invents fermentation and wine. These two things have unbelievable two things. One important thing in common, they're dual-use technologies. They can be used for good and for bad. It can be used to uncork prosperity in the plow or it could be used for humanity to become decadent. In the case of wine, it could be used, you know, to gladden the heart or clean water or to get drunk. And Noah gets drunk and falls into a drunken stupor in his tent and he's abused by Ham, his son. And the family falls apart on some level and Ham becomes cursed. And so Noah is the first inventor and innovator of a dual-use technology. And this tells us an important lesson. Nothing in life is neutral. Everything we invent and innovate is the values we put into it. And that's true of artificial intelligence, and that's true of synthetic biology, and that's true of machine learning and machine vision. Human beings will decide whether to infuse this with timeless values or with relativist values or with no values, and then it'll just take itself over and destroy itself in humanity. And That's an important lesson, I think, from from the story of Noah. It's super applicable to modern times.
1: Totally. Is there a company, in your opinion, that is... Successfully, you know, do you look for companies that successfully adopt any of these principles that you find uh, in the book of Genesis? Uh, any popular examples?
2: Sure. So, um, in, in you know, in this notion that, that businesses, I uh, say that values create value or timeless values create value. They create real economic value. So Lemonade is a great example of this the insurance company I invested in. A venture capitalist didn't used to invent insurance companies, but they've all become technology. And uh, so Lemonade looked at the insurance business and said, this is really broken. Why? Because if, God forbid, you've got a flood in your house, or your office, and you go to the insurance company, they put you through the seven rungs of hell to get paid. Why? Mm-hmm. Really simple reason. Because they make more money by denying your claim. It's really that simple. Insurance has a conflict of interest built into the model. By rejecting your claim, their bottom line goes up. And so they have every incentive to do that. And by the way, that creates a perverse thing. Dan Ariely once said that if you wanted to uh, create an industry that brings out the worst in humanity, it would be called insurance because you're afraid you're not going to get paid. So you kind of fraudulently trump up claims and inflate them and do all those things. It's this vicious cycle. And then every premium the premium payer or policyholder pays for, the, pays for the fraud of the other people. Of course, no one who's listening to this is fraudulent, but there are other people. and. Right. Um, And so Lemonade came and said, well, we can align this model by just managing the pool, the pool of money, and taking a flat fee of 25% to manage the pool. And all the leftover premiums will give to charity. And so if you mess with us or fraudulently make a fraudulent claim, you're not hurting Lemonade, you're hurting the charity. Mm -hmm. And so they've created a newly aligned model that puts values, charity, and alignment right at the center. It's the fastest-growing insurance company on the planet by a long shot.
1: Wow, I mean, do you think? Um, I, I had no idea that they were doing that. That's
2: that's that's quite novel. Um, ticker symbol LMND. It's a public company now, so everything I said to you just now is public public information.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I, I mean, let's just us go to something a little even more fundamental. Um, <clears throat> do you? You're you're both a successful person and quite learned and knowledgeable in the ways. And ideas of Torah Judaism. So do you think that acquiring wealth or becoming successful financially is a religious virtue of the Torah?
2: I think the Torah expects of us to create a society of fraternity and what I like to call the responsibility economy. What I termed in Hebrew in my book on Baikra and Leviticus, Kalkalat Achva, the brotherly economy or the responsibility economy. I think that's the view of the Torah. Everyone always asks whether. Uh, the Torah believes in capitalism or socialism. I think the answer is neither for what it's worth. It has its own view of the economy, which is called the responsibility economy. Kakalat, uh, ahva. I think the Torah's expectation is that we become successful. I'll come back to define what that means in a second so that we can make other people successful and independent. Um, and that's a key word, which mm-hmm. is success is not necessarily measured in material wealth as much as it's measured in your ability to grow the pie and make other people independently successful, or successful and independent. Um, and this is, by the way, it comes clear right in the first story of Avram, where Avram leaves Haran, his birthplace. He's already a wealthy man, the family's wealthy, because it says that, all the wealth that they accumulated in Haran, and the people that they accumulated there. And it says that Avram came to the land of Canaan, to the land of Israel, and he walks in, and, and we know He takes these people that he brought with him from Haran, his birthplace, plus his orphan nephew, Lot. Now, remember, we know, one biographical fact about this nephew, and that is he is an orphan. And then hard times hit. There's a famine in Israel. They go down to Egypt. And when they emerge from Egypt, Avram is more wealthy. And Lot himself is independently wealthy and successful, able to make his own independent decisions. Maybe makes good decisions or bad decisions to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he makes his own decisions and he's independently able to stand on his feet. So the pie is grown. And Abraham enables this orphan nephew to become independently successful or successful and independent. And I think that's what the Torah is after. And so uh, the Torah wants us as Jews to be responsible broadly writ large, and also to be responsible to make other people independently successful, to have self-confidence, to build families of their own, to be able to live on their own values and make ends meet themselves. It's actually not charity in the conventional sense of alms for the poor. This is enablement for that, what it's worth. The Torah's view of tzedakah, of charity, is not what we think about a little tzedakah box. That's not in the Torah. It doesn't exist. It's loans. Well, who do you give a loan to? Somebody who can pay it back. So you're investing in them to create a business so that they can pay you back your loan. And it's interest-free. That's on in, your own.
1: Mommy jumping in, the highest form of charity, according to the Rambam, Maimonides, is to get somebody a job to enable them to earn their own living which is interesting because you would think that's a separate kind of thing. That's nothing to do with charity. right? Charity is, is, is something you do to help somebody get back on their feet, but you're saying what you're suggesting is not temporarily back on their feet to make them to facilitate their own independence.
2: It's not only that. That eighth level of charity, the Rambam, which he calls the highest level, is the only level that appears in the Torah for real. I give you a loan. I only give you a loan if you can pay it back. And... When the Bible describes leket shechan payah, which is, what does a farmer do? A farmer leaves over a corner of his field for the poor people or the widows and the orphans. Okay, what do they have to do? Come work. They don't. There's no handouts. They come work in the field. Why? Because in their dignity, they learn a skill. They learn to harvest. They learn to pick up. They learn to work on the farm. They acquire dignity through that and some food. And when you leave behind what's called shechanah, whatever you left behind in the wheat field or in the, or, or in the grape harvest, the poor people walk behind you and pick it up. They look like every other worker in a factory. The way right. to think about it in modern terms is if I run a successful factory, I can employ two or three people who might be on unemployment right now, give them a trade, let them work on the factory line. And then, you know, if I've got some slack, someone goes on maternity or paternity leave or bereavement leave, or, you know, God forbid, get sick. I've got slack in the system. People I've trained to come in and they have and they have a trade. And I think the important thing about Abraham and Abraham's view of this is unlike Andrew Carnegie, I point this out in the book, who says wealthy people ought to manage uh, goods and, and money on behalf of the poor people of society or less fortunate. In Judaism, we believe in enabling whoever that person is who hasn't had the fortune to stand up and be independently successful for the long term. And that's the responsibility.
1: And and obviously you would be opposed um, in a society of any kind of, you know, welfare kind of handouts. Or do you think that, you know, what you just said is in the ideal world, but given the fact that there's just too many people without the education, too many people without the resources and playing devil's advocate on the other side now, um, that you would you would would you ever be in favor of any kind of welfare? uh handouts from a government to a people whether it's in israel or in the united states
2: so there, there's a few things here to unpack one is um sometimes people end up with with terrible situations from a health perspective or whatever it is and you know you, you need emergency care you, you know not just for you know take care of the family or whatever it is and you know those are obviously exceptions to uh to all rules but i think there, there's two parts here one is Unfortunately, as society, we've we've kind of hand out things to keep people quiet, rather than aspire to. Let's see if we can make them independent. And so, my view is we should give them more, but that includes skills because the aspiration is not to finish the month, but to enable people to be independent. We stopped aspiring to that, and there as 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 a society. And then there's two parts. One is the government versus civic society. My claim about the Torah. The Torah believes in really limited government. It spends, I think it's eight or 12 verses in the book of Devarim of Deuteronomy.
1: Excuse me, yeah.
2: Yeah, talking about the government, king. And all it tells you is you can't have a lot of wives, you can't have a lot of money, you can't have a lot of horses, because it should be limited. And what the Torah really believes in is a civic society. And Jewish society, by the way, is really good at this. We build community institutions to take care of people. And it's a civic society. And it expects of civilians, me, you, whoever's watching, to grab four other people and enable them to become empowered and independent and successful. That's the the aspiration. And so we need to keep aspiring to that. We can't say, oh, you know, the government's got it or you get a welfare check or a food stamp because that's not enough, that's a Band-Aid. And so sometimes you need emergency intervention for sure, Um, but that should not be the policy. That should be the Band-Aid for right now, but we can't stop there.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it's such a relevant issue for our world. You know, I'm living in New York City. The homeless problem has just gotten worse during COVID. It's all meshed up with the um, with mental health issues at the same time. Um, but I, I said to my class last night that last night just that the idea of there being homeless people of of you know every synagogue had what was called a tamchoy and a kupa, which was like a soup kitchen. The reason to this day that we make kiddush. At, on a Friday night, and kiddush is supposed to be where the meal is. And let's say you're not even having a meal in the synagogue. Why are you making kiddush? Is because the synagogue was always a place where people could find something to eat and a place to stay if need be. And um, if those types of charitable institutions exist within society, you don't need the government to, to to be making handouts. That'll happen on the private level. And that's I think I think that's the Torah's kind of viewpoint on this, which is that. We're supposed to be taking care of the downtrodden and the poor. And sometimes they sometimes, like you said, they're not always in a position to, to stand on their own two feet. But whose responsibility is it then to take care of? Is it the government or is it
2: the people? You know, and I think it's the people. Yeah. It's the people first and foremost. I think, you know, the, the point about mental health is really important. So thank God we've gotten to the point that we recognize that mental health is just like physical health. You know, the brain is a real part of the body and it's not people's imagination, et cetera. But, you know, dealing with mental health issues requires that we deal with human dignity. And in in my second volume, Everyone Can Be Moses, which will please God come out in English over the next year. Um, Sorry, out in Hebrew. I spend uh, a couple of chapters dealing with this notion that the Torah is after in its uh, view of charity and justice is actually dignity, human dignity. And when we provide people with dignity and human dignity, um, that, that helps alleviate mental health issues also because they feel good about themselves and, you know, earning an honest and decent living and be able to provide for your family is fundamentally, your mental health, make sure it doesn't degrade. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to change, shift gears a little. Um, you speak about the corrupt cities of Saddam and Gomorrah and just bringing this sort of a contemporary context. Do you think we are repeating some of the mistakes of the past, and specifically I'm referring to uh, products or platforms that we are now beginning to see do harm and create conflict, uh, specifically the uh, social media and its impact not only on children, uh, young adults. Um, How much do you think uh, of the societal impact when you invest, and what do you think we should be doing about these issues?
2: So when I invest, like I said before, I think that timeless values create economic value. I believe that deeply. And so it's a big part of my investment. Um, And so technology, like I said, in the context of NOAA, are what we decide to imbue them with. And if we decide to imbue them with timeless values, they can do a lot of good. And if we decide to either abdicate and and consider them neutral and let them blow in the wind, um, or... uh, Imbue them with bad values; they'll be bad. It's really that simple, and um, you know it requires a um, constant vigilance by creators, investors, board members, and consumers. By the way, to make sure that these products and platforms are for good. I'm going to surprise you with my next a- a comment um, because you referenced social media. I don't think social media and social media platforms are any worse than traditional media companies. Hmm. Or any better, they're no better, than, worse than CNN. They're no worse than the New York Times. They're no worse than the Washington Post. They all have the same phenomenon, which is a centralized power. In the case of the Washington Post, it's the publishers and editors. It's you know the Sulzberger family in the New York Times. It's whoever runs CNN and Fox News. And you know on Facebook, it's it's Zuckerberg and on Twitter it's Jack Dorsey. They're all the same. Um, they have some better things to them for what it's worth. Um, which is that anyone can speak up, and so you can hear anyone is far more democratized than the filter uh, of CNN and Fox News and the New York Times, etc. But it also has some worse things, which is there isn't human intervention before my you know itchy trigger finger starts to retweet things and like things and share things at incredible velocity. Right, and so the positive well, the, part is more it, democratized. The negative it, part is it's is, is much faster.
1: Well, the, besides the, the besides the speed though. You know, my kids are not going to get hooked on a Washington Post article. You know, my kids are not going to start feeling FOMO because their friends are on some vacation and they couldn't, you know, their father's a rabbi, doesn't have the money to bring them on that vacation. You know, um, these are not I, I don't think that these have such a precedent. I mean, the the idea that Facebook, you know, is using out, al- you know, creating algorithms based on what is going to hook us in and keep us almost obsessed, you know, late at night with these images that either are very negative images and not just for our kids. Um, I guess that's what I'm referring to. Like, what level of responsibility do you think, you know, you said it before beautifully. You said that when you were talking about Noach and the plow, like there's no such thing as any kind of technology innovation that doesn't have some kind of, you know, negative side effects. Everything comes, you know, everything comes positive or negative. Yeah. But... but And clearly, look, you and I are right on. We're on Facebook right now. We couldn't be doing this interview and broadcasting this to all the people if it wasn't for Facebook. So it would be hypocritical of me to say, you know, it's all bad. Obviously, it's not all bad. But what about the negative? What about the damage that we know it is doing?
2: So, again, I just want to touch on the comparison to Facebook and and I'll come back to it. But I was the opening act for a senior member of a large media company. Uh, who couldn't be confused for a right-wing media company and he was asked by the audience this is around the 2016 election why he had Donald Trump on so much and he and he said because it activated the viewership and made them angry or whatever it was And we sold a lot of ads so you know this stuff exists everywhere uh, in any centrally controlled media platform which by the way Facebook is and CNN is and and Fox is and New York Times is and it runs an additional risk if you have a centralized media company of deplatforming, meaning if I say something offensive or I say something that's non-consensus, um, you know, by whatever the current zeitgeist is, you can deplatform me, and that's happened to people like Jordan Peterson, for example, who've had their books removed. Um, we're in book banning land again because of the centralized nature of these platforms. And so, um, to answer uh, your direct question about these things, uh, you know what you call the algorithms, it's. Um, uh, the thing that really worries me is the deplatforming of multiple views. Mm-hmm. And then, does Mark Zuckerberg have a responsibility for it? Hell yes, he runs it, and he can platform and deplatform people. That means he's in charge, right? If you ask me if I prefer Mark Zuckerberg having it or the politicians, I'll stay with Mark Zuckerberg. By the way, and <laughs> I think uh, you know, in the world of competition, we should encourage people. If you think Facebook is bad or Instagram is bad whatever it is, but we should set up a competitor. And it's my view. I've said this very openly. I've written about it, that uh, Facebook ought to be forced to open up people's social profiles so that they're portable and can be taken off the platform because that's monopolistic behavior. And so monopolies need to be dealt with. Um, But I don't think it's more inherently bad than these other news media categories. And your kids FOMO, for what it's worth, we need to educate our kids. What we really have going on now is a generation gap where you and I, I won't speak for you. I'm old. Okay. I'm 50. I'm a grandfather. It's very clear. Even though I spend my whole day in technology that I understand nearly as much as my kids do. And we have a giant generation gap for how to educate on these platforms. And we need to educate our children how to be wise about them and how to use them. And yes, it's really tempting. It's really, 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 really tempting. And by the way, I had gotten off Facebook for a bunch of years. I got back on when my book came out because there were a lot of people there and Jewish people a lot of Jewish discussion. And so we need to teach our kids to get off. Most of them, by the way, are off Facebook for it. It's worth. they are on Instagram. Right. Um, and we then need to insist that people like Zuckerberg and Dorsey use timeless values. And this is the last point I want to make on this, Dobby, which is these guys are blowing in the wind. So they'll de-platform Jordan Peterson and de-platform this guy, uh, et cetera because they're all using relativist values. They have no anchors. And the Torah provides us with timeless values, timeless guideposts, timeless anchors to guide these very hard decisions in very difficult, challenging times with new technology emerging everywhere. And that's what we need. We need a focus on these timeless values from the
1: Torah. That's such a powerful point. And how? In other words, how do we get out these timeless values in a better way, in a more efficient or just broader manner? Um, sure. You know, t- 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 so they get to the likes of a Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and they really make an- enough of an impact. Because I would, you just hit, you know, you just hit on probably one of my um, greatest struggles professionally today. Okay, uh, I'm reaching out to 20s and 30s, less affiliated. We have, I have an amazing amazing we've been doing this twenty three years at m g e and I have just incredibly smart, motivated young men and women coming off college campus with a more of a relativistic you know moral outlook on life. It's no longer what you think is right and wrong, it's all about what you feel it's all one's opinion now. when I started in this business twenty something years ago, you know people believed objectively, in some kind of right and wrong, I just had to make a case, not just, but I had to make a case that Torah, you know, was, you know, is a compelling source for that, that, those moral right and wrongs. But that whole question has been challenged today. And people are coming out, not necessarily believing. Um, even though people do believe in God, they don't necessarily believe that there is a system of right and wrong, which flows from a higher being. Which, which is what Torah is fundamentally premised on. So I'm curious from your perspective, how do we get that out more through technology or, or innovation?
2: The first thing that we're challenged to do is to interpret the Torah in a modern lens. The Torah, um, in many cases, has been abducted into the Beit Midrash and not let out into the real world to contend with really modern issues. Um, it's contended with some issues around health and the science of health. by Tendler, who just passed away, very famous for that. But we have very fast changing digital environments. We have very fast changing economic environments, and we have very fast changing zeitgeist out there. And we need a cadre of people who can talk about Torah in a modern person's lens. And if your kids are spending a lot of time on Instagram and on Facebook, somebody needs to engage them in a language that they understand about that. And you know, I said this at a lecture. I think it was last week at Yeshiva University. Is we have a problem in that many people can't talk about this and make it relevant. And you know, if the ox scores the donkey, uh, uh, or the or the cow, uh, ox scores the cow, and the, you trade the ox for the donkey, um, can't be told in a language of, of of a modern barter or crypto system. We, we've got a problem. Yeah, and. We need to show Torah's as And so we need a cadre of people who can who can interpret it through a modern lens, just like, you know, Rabinu, Tom and Rashi did in the Middle Ages. And the Ramban did when he did the disputations in Spain, you know, for bad reason, it was the disputations, but he was really able to. And and, and we just don't have that right now in this fast changing digital society and society is changing and digitizing at an incredibly rapid rate. And, uh, you know, the halls of Torah are lagging behind.
1: Yeah, I, I love the language that you use about the, the Torah being abducted or, let's say, being confined. There's so much beautiful Torah on that. You know, the um, the, the badim, which were the poles attached to the various uh, parts of the, the tabernacle of the Mishkan, were all pulled out when they were rested. And it was time for them to set up the Mishkan. And when it was time for them to carry it, they would insert the poles again. Everything, I'm sure you know this teaching, everything except for the Aran the Ark of the Covenant, because it contained the Torah, and Rav Hirsch, great German-Jewish philosopher famously taught, because the Torah has to be portable. The Torah is never supposed to be provincial and relegated to one little part. And by the way, I know I'm here to plug your book, um, but I will say that the first book I wrote, which is called Beyond the Instant, was all that. Ten chapters, and I'll send you a copy, Blineder. Ten chapters of, of Torah messages that are pertinent and relevant to our day and age, particularly in the realm of happiness um, and trying to find purpose and meaning in a very consumer kind of age um, in, in, in our in our own time. So, uh,
2: you're- I think, by the way, there, 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 there's a critical point to be made here, which is I think the texts themselves, and this is what I try to show in the book, the texts themselves are readable in a modern person's eye and in a modern lens. And that, you know, it, obviously, every commentary brings his own lens to it. You know, I, I'm fond of saying that the Abarbanel, who was the finance minister of Portugal, hated the monarchy uh, and didn't believe in the total monarchy because he had a terrible experience with the monarchy in Spain and Portugal. And Ibn Ezra, who was a pauper, viewed everything through a poor man. His eyes, my eyes are technology and the economy. But I think it's super relevant to what everything going on right now. And to the point you made earlier about relativism, it's we need to be able to stand up and say. Hey, look, relativist, um, I know you just invented this moral code in the last 20 years. Congratulations. This has stood the test of time and built lasting, successful societies and communities. You ought to pay attention. Not some huckster on, you know, reality television or in, in, in Congress.
1: Now, something which is sustainable that can stand uh, the test of time 100%. I should send you also an amazing article that Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb wrote. It's called, Can You Be Good Without God? He wrote it in 19... It wasn't an article. It was actually a sermon he delivered. I've read it. You're right. You know what I'm talking about, though. So it's, you know, he he does talk about how, um, you know, he says basically we're working off the reservoirs of the previous generations. But I just want to reiterate for our listeners here, the book that we've been discussing that Michael wrote is called The Tree of Life and Prosperity. Very, very much recommend... Everyone get this book and you'll be able to actually see real live Torah principles and and in terms of the way they interact and can interact in our daily lives today. I want to ask you a question about a previous book that you wrote, um, which is called The Vanishing Jew. Tell us a little about the book and what is the, the wake up call that
2: you think Jews need to hear? So first, I should say I, it was it was translated, but not sufficiently adapted except for the epilogue to the book. And so I hope to republish It's mm-hmm. uh, the truth. Um, the book. asks the following question, which is what did the author of the book of Esther have in mind when he wrote this missive or wrote this story? Um, and it's very clear that the person who wrote the book of Esther was not living in Persia where the story takes place he's living in Israel uh during that time, you know during that time or shortly thereafter cuz cuz the hebrew it's written in we won't get into why that's the case and so um we have there at that time in history um the building of the second temple call it about 70 years into the return to zion uh the period of Ezra and Nehemiah and uh you have a big group of Jews who haven't come back and they're in the exile in Persia. And that was the first time in history we had a large exiled Jewish community at the same time that there was statecraft and state building going on back in the land of Israel, building the second Commonwealth of the Jewish people back then. And my argument is that that's really similar to what's going on uh, right now, which is we have a large diaspora community, primarily in the United States and a, a uh, large community growing in Israel, uh, building the future of the third Jewish commonwealth uh, here here in Israel. And the person who wrote the Megillah, who wrote the book of Esther, um, tells a really intricate story about an economy, the economy of Persia that goes through ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And he says, hey, when the economy gets hard, there's a lot of anti-Semitism and Haman or Haman, you know, rises to power. Uh, because of the uh, economic depression going on in, in then Persia. Um, but that that's not the story of the Megillah. And ironically, it's the anti-Semitism that causes the Jews to congeal and bring out their, their own unique identity. But the real story of the Megillah, which in my view is a tragedy and ends as a tragedy, is the story of assimilation, which has made more Jews disappear than anti-Semitism uh, over time, other than the Holocaust. But even if you include the 6 million people, killed in the greatest tragedy in human history, the Holocaust. Um, we've lost more Jewish people to assimilation in history than we have to uh, anti-Semitism. They didn't die, but, but they've been lost in the Jewish people. And so the pernicious threat, according to the author of the Megillat, is actually assimilation and not anti-Semitism. And all the characters, Mordechai, who has the name of the Babylonian god Marduk, and Esther, who has the uh, uh, name of the Babylonian Persian god, goddess Ishtar, um, and all the characters thereafter um, uh, are, are, are absorbed and assimilated uh, because of economic prosperity that goes on in Persia. And, and Mordecai is criticized by the author of the Megillah for staying in the exile and not coming back to land of Israel to rejoin the people. And what we know is we don't know much about the exiled Jews uh, thereafter after this story, but we do know that all of our core cultural heritage Uh, from the Mishnah, from the Anchei Knesset Agdola, the Great Assembly, was all created in Israel thereafter. And I think there's real parallels to what's going on today, which is that the cultural history of the Jewish people globally is being created in Israel right now, not in the diaspora, despite 2,000 uh, years there. And the most pernicious threat to the Jewish people is not anti-Semitism, but but assimilation. I'll finish with one quick story. After I published the book in Hebrew, I got a call from somebody I know for 25 years and have tremendous admiration for, whose name is David Bloomberg. David Bloomberg was the CEO of Mizrahi Bank in Israel for many many years, and today he's chairman of the Na- the National Library of Israel. And he called me and said, Eisenberg, come see me. Um, I read your book, come see me. And I and I go to see him. He's a man in his seventies today, a wonderful guy. And uh, he said, I read your book. You're missing one statistic, one fact. I said, What's that? I think you're going to tell me. He said, uh, Between 1880 and 1910, do you know how many Jewish people emigrated from Russia, Poland, and you know? ukraine to north and south america i said i did not he said between three and three and a half million people and i said okay he said this is this is pre-world war one keep this in mind and he said well the world population
1: 1880 to
2: 1910 three million he said the world population is going four to five x in that time uh and so you know jewish people generally tend to procreate a fair amount so if you just took that cohort of people this should be between you know call it 15 to 20 million Jewish people in North and South America, not including post-World War I immigration and post-World War II immigration. Right. there's 7 million people there, Jews there today. Where'd the rest go? There's been no anti-Semitism. The answer is we know where the rest went. They assimilated and they've been lost.
1: Is that, Michael, let me ask you, I mean, how long ago did you make Aliyah?
2: 29 years, uh, 20, 1993 was that, 28 and a half years ago. And
1: was that, was that a major reason?
2: But uh, yes, but really, I, I view Israel as the project of the Jewish people and it, the project to create a better world. And I wanted to join the project. Uh, I was inspired by Rabbi Amital when I was 19, who said to me, I asked him, and I wasn't planning on moving to Israel at the time. I asked him whether there was a bigger mitzvah to move to Israel and sell an unpopulated place, the Galil, the Negev, where you could go to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv populated cities, it'd be the same mitzvah. And he looked at me and he said, It's all nonsense. What you say is nonsense. You need to make aliyah and open a factory that'll employ 10,000 people to earn an honest and decent living. That's where I took away a lot of my views of making other people successful and independent. And really at that moment, I decided I needed to join the project and come to Israel and try to create an economy that would make it more welcoming for Jews. Look, you know, one of the things I also write in the book is. Uh, people in general are homo economicus. They follow money. They follow prosperity and opportunity. And so if you want to attract more people to Israel broadly and more Jews to Israel specifically, we need to turn Israel into an economic magnet that brings people here. Because people ask these questions. They want to follow economic opportunity and, you know, and what, into America. What? And
1: what, what would you tell to many of our listeners? I'm going to put you on the spot if you don't mind. What would you tell our many listeners who will not be making Aliyah, who are staying in the diaspora, in uh, modern-day Persia, if you will. Uh, what What is your message to them? Because, I mean, I don't personally disagree with you. I think the ultimate place for the Jew is in Israel. And I think the future of the Jewish people, certainly the third commonwealth, is in Israel, as you said. Um, I've made my lot here to try to engage as many of our uh, less connected Jewish brothers and sisters in Jewish life. We've had pretty decent level of success, thankfully, but yeah, but at the same time, those statistics are real. You know, if three and a half million Jews, 1880 to 1910, like you just said, should have turned into 15 million, then we should be a lot, a lot bigger than that even. Uh, and we're not, even notwithstanding all of our, you know, um, noble um, efforts to uh, engage the less affiliated. Um, what would you tell your brothers and sisters here, over here, seven, six or seven hours earlier?
2: <laughs> First thing I would have to tell them is come join the project. Join something that's bigger than you are, which is building the third Commonwealth, and you can be a key contributing member to do that. You'll matter a lot more here to our future. The second thing I would tell them is what my wife says kind of around the anniversary of Ali, Ali-, Ali every year, which is, we made the decision so our children wouldn't have to. And so when you think about your legacy and if you, your, your progeny in one and two and three generations, make that decision. And the third thing I would say is if you're not going to come, at least be a part of uh, the project from afar. And being a part of the project means turning up. I told a group of college students last week at YU, I, I find it unconscionable that Jewish students around the country haven't turned up at every college campus where there's anti-Semitism. We need to make people feel comfortable so they don't feel the need to assimilate in the host culture. And so we need to stand up for our brothers and take responsibility for them. You can join the project by promoting Israeli technology, joining an Israeli company, doing all those things. And, and you can do it by just turning up in Israel two or three times a year instead of in Puerto Rico for vacation or the Bahamas or wherever it is. And that matters too. Mm-hmm. And you know, to, to bring your kids to see it firsthand, um, no, There's amazing things. There's like this uh, thing called momentum uh, and JRP, which brings uh, married men and women to to Israel, you know, to be here. Bring your kids too. experience it and do a kind of authentic Israeli experiences. Work on a farm for a bit. Touch the land. And when you touch the land, even as a tourist and as a visitor, something from you is left behind in that land and something from that land goes with you back home.
1: Beautiful. Well, we've been um, bringing groups to Israel since I started this place in 1998, um, I would say COVID—one of the most difficult, challenging parts of COVID—has been being cut off from Israel. I have two boys there now, and um, one who's living there, and the other one studying in yeshiva there. And it's—it's um, it's made me feel more disconnected from from Israel than ever before. And I'm—I'm I'm going in a couple of weeks. Please God, very proud to say also that MG has about 35 to 40 of its graduates who have made aliyah we continue to promote aliyah and i don't know if you're familiar with this michael but what's fascinating new i think a new kind of situation is that in a lot of 20s and 30s that's our population that are not necessarily becoming observant are making aliyah friends um uh, from participants from mg who have not necessarily become Shomer Shabbat. But i have moved to Tel Aviv in the last couple of years, and are and it's are. Huge. It's unbelievable. And uh, my son is has a great voice, and he sings. And he was the chazin, uh on Rosh Hashanah for just an outreach kind of Rosh Hashanah service um, in Tel Aviv, started by a young man, Jay Schultz, who became observant at MGE fifteen years ago. Do you know Jay? You're you're he's you're, a good friend. Okay, so you know Jay's. Jay found his Judaism here at MGE a long time ago. And then he hired Jonathan Feldman, who was my East Side rabbi for 17 years. And then Jonathan hired my son to be his cousin. So little by little, we're getting back there. But I appreciate the message because I'm a realist and not everybody's going. And unfortunately, we do repeat Jewish history. Only 42,000 Jews left uh, ancient Persia and went with Ezra and Nehemiah back to Israel to build the second Beit HaMikdash. It's a pitiful number. We thankfully, um, there are more Jews living in Israel in the United States today, so it's actually better than it was, just, just proportionally. Um, so I think there's a lot to be uh, proud of, but I'm trying to give a reason for Jews to be Jewish in America um, and to stay Jewish and to embrace their Jewish heritage here in the United States. Hopefully enough will pick up and want to go. But realistically, not everyone is going to a
2: it's lot of- about your kids and your grandkids and who they're going to be. And if you want to give them an anchor in these swirling winds of modern digital times, that anchor is Torah. That anchor is the traditions of our fathers and grandfathers. And it's the only thing because it stood the test of 3000 years. It's the only thing that we can be certain will be here in 3000 years when your children, grandchildren, great, 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 great grandchildren are around. And so I don't think you should need any more reason than that, uh, to go do it. It just works. And, um, yes, sometimes it's uncomfortable and yes, sometimes it looks strange and yes, sometimes, but that's okay. You're part of a community that's global. Rabbi Riskin once said that Judaism is the biggest, uh, country club, global country club there is every synagogue you can walk into and feel at home. And, you know, that's, that's a big deal. And so, uh, you know, we should tell people to do that. Uh, but, you know, back to your previous comment, by the way, and tell your sons to come to us for Shabbat for sure. Um, and when you come, feel free to come as well. But um, you know, one of the things I did was uh, I set up an organization called Naveau Network, which takes people who have immigrated to Israel and are in the tech economy to start. We're going to expand it to other things soon and creates a professional network for them. Because one of the hardest things to do when you move to any new country is to find a professional network. What happens if you get fired for your first job? You know, what do we do? And so I've uh, created special networks working really well. So if anyone of your people who've moved to Israel, moved to Tel Aviv, or thinking of moving to Tel Aviv, or in the tech industry, look us up. It's the Nevo Network. You'll have a built-in family here. And it's a lot of the same people you talked about. not necessarily observant, living in Tel Aviv and working in the tech community here. And it's, it's wonderful and amazing. And Jay's a big part of it and an amazing guy. And it's and just come do that. But Torah matters. It really, 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 really does. It really matters. I
1: I I so appreciate this message. You, you can't imagine, Michael. And if you ever want to take a little sabbatical from Israel and serve as a scholar-in-residence at the Manhattan Jewish Experience, you just made the best commercial for MGE that I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, I just wrote down the Nevo Network, the very very small world. And you are um, you are a Kiddush Hashem, a walking Kiddush Hashem, because you're you're walking the walk. A uh, great great deal of respect for the work you're doing there. Not only on the financial, you know, sort of venture capital level, but just being a proud Jew and demonstrating the 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 relevance, the contemporary relevance of Torah. Uh, you are absolutely one hundred percent correct that we have to do better at packages at packaging, distilling ancient Torah wisdom in a contemporary kind of way, so that young men and women will see that this is a living and breathing. Um, path to take in the 21st century. I've been trying to make that case for a long time, and thankfully, a lot of people see it. It just has to be presented. You know, we lost, I think, one of the great presenters of Judaism in that way. And that was Jonathan Sachs.
2: And yeah, what was key about him is he was a distiller, not a packager. He was deeply authentic. Yeah. And uh I, I you know, giant among us.
1: Yeah. A giant. But but he demonstrated. He yes. did, And I think that's a very good distinction. A distiller, not a, what was the word? Not a packager. Not a packager. He did demonstrate pretty powerfully, and he spoke at MJE, and I had a personal relationship with him, that people will sit and listen long enough to get the real Torah, to get the real wisdom. Because the the world, and and unfortunately, the way things have developed, you know, um, has just become very sort of um, empty. And people are feeling that, and they're looking for something. And we have, to, we have to be there to, to demonstrate that Torah has that, that profundity and that anchor like you so beautifully. And I just love that you've figured out a way of showing it in the, in the economic realm because that is something for, for our students and my, my students and participants Energy in 20s and 30s, they're really focused on two things in life right now. And that is, you know, social, finding the right person to spend the rest of their life with, A and B. Uh, developing a career and I just love the positive messages um, and the wisdom and I really recommend everyone uh, we're gonna be putting your book in the library in the MG library um, and just putting it out there a little more the tree of life and prosperity Uh, also the other book of the vanishing Jew that I mentioned but this is the one that really for those of you listening to the podcast watching the the Facebook and all the other social media platforms and YouTube this is gonna be on this is a book to be able to get real, live principles for your career, for your profession, and for the economy in general, and to be able to see that Torah is for the 21st century. It's not some sort of outdated, archaic um, you know, wisdom that was great for our grandparents, our Bubbies and Zadis in Europe, but it's really for here and now, in the 21st century, wherever you're living. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Hashem should bless you. Thank you and your continuing growing family, your new grandson, you should have a lot of nachas, and maybe I'll make a little connection there. Uh, I'm going to be coming in a couple of weeks, and I'd love to, and we're going to be bringing a group, Bizrat Hashem, as we do every summer. I bring two groups every summer, um, and a lot of the people who have made Aliyah actually came to Israel for the first time on these trips. We'll be there in August, July and August sometime, so we'll be in touch.
2: Can't wait to see you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, and keep on doing the great work.
1: Oh man. thank you so much. And thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Thank you.
2: You're a lot to us. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute. And when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.